As a little bit of background, David Roth is an editor at Deadspin, where along with writing and editing, he co-hosts the Deadcast with Drew Maggery. Uh, That's their podcast. It's pretty good. You should check it out. He's written for Vice, SB Nation, and The Classical, and The Baffler, uh, which he co- and he co-founded The Classical, and he's written for many, many other outlets. Uh, he, he's great. He's great to, to, to follow on Twitter as well. Um, so without further ado, uh, here is our interview with David Roth. All right, listeners, we are joined now uh, by David Roth. David Roth is with us uh, here as our guest. Uh, we're incredibly excited to have him. Uh, as I mentioned in the intro, he is, uh, you know, for, for my money, one of the absolute best sports writers that's working today and also, uh, I think, a really valuable uh, voice on, on, uh, on this moment in culture and in politics. So, David, welcome to Taking Ship. Uh, thank you, Frank. I have no idea where you're getting any of that, but it's very nice to hear. So we have, I want to dive straight in on this piece that you wrote for Baffler. Uh, it was titled Downward Spiral. Was this in, uh, was this in February or, or uh, January of this year? It, uh, it, the issue came out, I believe, in January. I wrote it uh, over the fall. Okay. All right. So, it, I think it's, I filed it, it like week five of the NFL season or something like that. Got it. Okay. So it, so it was so it occurred through the through the 2017 NFL season or it was written during that period and then it was published in January. Got it. Yeah. We've talked on this podcast about uh, the NFL before, particularly in the context of Colin Kaepernick. And this is this is not a sporting podcast. This is a politics podcast. Uh, but as as you have discovered, as so many people are, are are as more and more people are seeing and talking about more and more, you hear uh, it. You really you do. It. You really do. That's exactly right. You know, it's just you know, more and more people recognize how important this is. Uh, you can't you can't keep those two things separated. And the idea that they ever were separate, I think, is ridiculous. Uh, so we've talked about this in the, the NFL in the context of Colin Kaepernick and what it sort of says of how the way the NF, the way the NFL closed ranks around protecting this norm. Uh, you know, of, of, of particularly black players, you know, keeping their keeping their mouths shut is basically what was happening there. Uh, you know, sort of as a window to broader uh, broader social and political issues. But so that's been the primary way that we've talked about the NFL. Your piece in 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 uh, in Baffler. Uh, refers to that, but it makes a broader case about the state of the NFL, uh, and and which which is a as a and it makes a good case, one of the better ones for why the state of the NFL is in gen, is a subject of general public interest. Uh, so first, so I'm going to ask you for a second in a, in a second what occasioned this piece, and then uh, to talk a little bit about some of the content of it and and whether your view of the NFL has has changed or kind of what it is right now. Uh, but I will just say I think you really uh, you you really encapsulated why the NFL is a is sort of transcends sports uh, when uh, in this way. Uh, you said the NFL's self-dramatizing rights of civic belonging are now a real and autonomous part of our bedrock national saga. Uh, and there's some real truth to that. It's been pretending to be an important national institution for so long that it kind of has almost become that by default. So what occasioned this piece about the NFL? What is the state of it? Uh, and, and what occasioned the piece? And what would you say now about about where the NFL has gone culturally? I mean, in the most literal sense, what occasioned the piece was Chris Lehman asking me to write for a magazine that I've been reading since I was in college. And it was, I mean, I would have written about if he'd asked me to uh, just like really go back over in great depth, uh, like Hanson's discography, I would have written the exact same number of words uh, just for the contributor's copy of the magazine, honestly. Sure. Uh, and we're I, looking forward to that piece with great anticipation. Yeah. And it's been, uh, the research has been some of the most difficult stuff I've ever done, but I think I've really gotten down into some important stuff. I don't know why I picked Hanson. 
They're yeah. they're they're fine. They seem like nice guys. They're fun, but a lot of it would I think a lot of it like the kind of depth that you would put into that would they be make really, really good beer now actually. I had it when I was at Vice. I had the Um Hops IPA. Yeah, yeah it's yeah. not bad. It's fine. It was definitely better than I expected it yeah, to be. Yeah, much like, better than I expected. Is, yep. Uh, we can keep talking. <laughs> I, I was on. <laughs> this is a handsome podcast direction. now. If Ellie didn't uh, bring up the mm hops, I was going to do it too. I'm not in the business of not saying mm hops when given the opportunity to do it. Hey, you're uh, not a monster. I'm not, yeah, I'm no dummy. Uh, but what I will say about uh, in terms of the the piece itself, I, as I was writing it, it was sort of the. Uh, the Kaepernick thing was going on, and then the response to the protests uh, during the beginning part of the NFL season, and then uh, the sort of Trump occasion backlash that followed them was all sort of happening while I was, I'd say, writing the middle third of the piece. And the Kaepernick stuff kept getting pushed further and further down in there uh, to the point where I think Chris really very much wanted me to move it back up towards the top, just because it seemed like what you know, what started with Kaepernick in terms of being, I think, a very lucid and coherent political protest on his part uh, quickly, you know, in the way that everything sort of does now, like metastasized into this spectacle of, uh, you know, umbrage going one way or another, um, all of which more or less is at, at that point was dissociated from any actual political issue or political argument that it eventually became, you know, this sort of a series of old and familiar NFL things, owners wanting to assert uh, that they're in control of the players, uh, fans wanting to uh, yell at and dominate the players that they notionally love, but mostly kind of just uh, use as a binge drinking excuse. And a lot of that stuff kind of came together in a way that I think was, was even dumber than, I sort of would have anticipated if you'd told me that the initial Kaepernick situation was going to somehow get worse in year two. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'm still kind of trying to make sense of it. I mean, my opinion of the NFL hasn't changed as a league, really. Uh, It's still, you know, something that I watch, although I think I watch it less and less uh, as time goes by. But I, I think if any, like what's been interesting about the way that that whole hell year that the NFL just had worked out is that I think it's the first time in a very long time that you can imagine uh, things maybe someday being different in the NFL. And it's not going to be because the owners come to their senses, but I do think it's uh, that's been a very uh, go along to get along players union for an awfully long time. And they've been pushed around as a result. And I, I just don't know that that is going to be tenable anymore uh, for a number of reasons. But I just don't think the players are, are going to take that shit. So that's interesting. And that, that is and that feels like it, it, the idea that that the essential conflict at the heart of because the NFL is sort of it's been able to have it both ways for so long like to, to be able to brand itself as this kind of like fourth branch of the military stroke family friendly like family bonding experience like all of the all of the warmth and goodness of a kind of of a you know of an america that a lot of a lot of the viewers would would like to would like to see uh they've been they've been able to get to get away with that without revealing that there is a there's a pretty grim and kind of a dark core to that um and and this season feels like 
that was expo- like the essential problem is to, was exposed at a level that it, it, with a clarity that we hadn't really seen before. And this is this is years in the making. I mean, people on the left have had, and I say this as someone who again is like like you. I'm watching less of it, although I'm mean, going to still watch it from time to time. Uh, but people on the left have had objections to you know the way this gets cartoonish and oafish mishandling of domestic violence incidents, uh, the you know the 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 ugliness and ickiness of the of race, which has always been in there in one way or another, just never quite this baldly. Uh, and, and it's interesting to hear you say that you think it might, it might change. Uh, so what is it that things have gotten worse or is it that we are only seeing them more clearly now? And is that what might drive the change? Yeah, I think I, I would go with option C there. And just that I think things have, I believe gotten worse. I think that just in general, uh, the last, I mean, you know, whatever the, the Trump period in our national history is, I think, defined by a sort of uh, shamelessness and aggressiveness on the part of the most powerful people. And I think that you know, it wasn't like the NFL was significantly less exploitive, you know, five years ago. I just feel like at this point, everybody is a little bit more, at least, you know, owners, exact, you know, like the people in the, the NFL commissioner's office and the people making rules and handing down disciplinary you know, actions and stuff like that are all a little bit more overdetermined and a little bit more aggro in how they go about pushing all of that stuff. And that, you know, conditions are a response going back the other way. I, I mean, I don't know t- to what extent things can change. It's difficult. I mean, it's a very undemocratic system. And the only real lever that the players have is, you know, the uh, right to strike. And that doesn't traditionally work very well. I mean, it just is sort of hard for any professional sports union to strike for better pay or for better rights or whatever and wind up, uh, you know, with the sympathy of the people that are supposed to be their fans. And I think it's for the NFL, it's going to be significantly more difficult just given the nature of that fandom. And, you know, again, like the, the sort of the way that the pressure and all of this was just kept getting turned up this year. Yeah. Is, is there a league, do you think, um, that has made performative nostalgia as central a part of its identity to the extent that the NFL has? I would say Major League Baseball to a certain extent has, although I think it's a very different sort of nostalgia. I mean, I think that baseball's got uh, an issue with that in the sense that it has, uh, you know, it really was America's pastime for a century and more. And it has a great purchase on the you know general imaginations of you know, fans and people, you know, kids and parents and everybody else. I, for the NFL, what's been weirdest about it for me is that, I mean, for most of its existence, the NFL was a pretty skanky, weird league, right? Like that it was, if you go back, not even to, you know, the 70s and stuff like that, but the 80s and 90s when I was a kid, like it was, the owners were like just like, alcoholic dirt bags, like third generation NFL owning guys and the teams themselves, the players, like it was not a, a great league. It wasn't a great product. And then sometime after, I mean, like really after the turn of the millennium, when things really turned around for the league and it became this juggernaut, it had to kind of like retcon a, a whole new history onto itself that not just to fit with like the, the broader aspirations of the brand as it, came to understand itself or sell itself, but also like it needed to kind of make some shit up. Like the, like Al Davis wasn't the story they were trying to sell anymore. Now they were trying to pretend that they were like somehow this independent nation state within the United States, but that was somehow more patriotic than the United States at the same yeah. time. Like it was a very confusing sort of moving target that they were trying to hit. 
And for a while they were hitting it. And then, you know, once things started to fall apart this year, it's like, they've never really had an answer for this. This is the first time that the real grandiose conception of the league that's existed for the last maybe 20 years. This is the last time that this is the first time that that's really been like uh, challenged. And mm-hmm. it's not a very well understood idea. I don't think on the part of the NFL or really, you know, yeah, that, that anyone in the NFL, that anyone in charge of any any budget of any kind or any enterprise of any meaning, like within the NFL, would would somehow put together put it this way would put together put together put together the way that this has played out for the NFL, as you say, re, you know, retconning its own history, rebranding itself, and has done this in a way that is strategic and sensible. It just passes belief. And I'll give you the best example that I can think of is that Roger Goodell annually gives a thing that is literally called, like adults actually call this the state of the NFL address as if he were the goddamn president of the United <laughs> States. It's ridiculous. And, and, and so this kind of like this weird KFAB of like the trappings of authority and legitimacy is something that I think they sort of cottoned on to. Yeah. Around the turn of the millennium sounds about right. Uh, and, and just kind of rode without understanding what they were doing. And, and finally when they were, and finally when they got caught between the left and the right, it began to expose some of the ridiculousness of all of that. But yeah, you're totally right. I mean, it used to be, you know, in the eighties and nineties, it was much more, you know, 22 guys from, you know, industrial towns punching each other in the dick for 60 minutes. Yeah, and then, is, you know, it, it had, it had its charms, you know, like sure, above, and, above and beyond what you described, but yeah, yeah like, it, yeah, that's not, yeah, sure. I mean, and, and to be fair, I watched a, like, you know, I mean, that, that was when I started watching it. Like it wasn't, it wasn't a bad product, but, but the, you know, the, the, you know, the high flying acrobatic act that it's become now, uh, is is I mean altogether I, I would say a superior spectacle, uh, probably probably significantly better for the players. Although that's that's obviously still the issue, and just a better thing altogether. And so the way that they've had to kind of and have sort of taken it on the fly and attempted to adjust with Roger Goodell at the helm has been absolutely fascinating to watch. Yeah, I mean, and he's like he's an interesting figure in all of this too, because he's authentically a man who's never had a full time job outside of the National Football League. Like it's like, it's it's like he was raised by the league. He really was in a lot of ways. I mean, he was, this was all he ever wanted to do. Like his dad was a moderate Republican. uh, Like he was briefly a Senator and a state representative and in uh, like a represent, like a national, he was in Congress. Why am I unable to say that? Uh, And he, this was all his like dopey red son ever wanted was to like be near the football guys. And it's, I mean, so of course he's not equipped to deal with, any of the adversity, you know, that would come from this, because this is like, this is not a, a terribly smart or like qualified man. The only thing that he understands is how to speak the kind of weird house language of the 31 billionaires that he works for. And those guys are not necessarily, this is again, like it's such a 2018 realization. Uh, I mean, anyway, where maybe the realization is arriving more broadly by the day that simply because somebody has a billion dollars, does that mean that they have any other attributes uh, worth writing home about? And this is, I think what we've seen with this, the idea of the NFL owner as being somebody who treats his franchise like a, a public good, or even with anything other than the sort of utility that, you know, you would use, for instance, if you were pulling on a slot machine, like that's just really barely is the case anymore. These are crass dummies who have very little attachment to their teams, sort of realized that they're, or their communities in which those teams sit, but they realize how to, you know, extract the maximum amount of money from them. It's sort of hard to imagine why anybody 
uh, would respect or whatever give the time of day to these guys. Yeah, it's it really is astonishing, and uh, you know I think, and that brings us to what, for for lack of a better term, I'll sort of call this this the cultural moment in which we uh, in which we live. Because I don't know what how else to describe it except this period in time and the things that are happening politically and culturally during it. Yeah, uh, I, find, and, and, I find that for a shorthand, shit world works. Shit world is good. Yeah, that's a good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which brings which brings us to our our pleasant or just as we call it, dumbest timeline America. Yeah, this yeah. is this is it, David. Yeah, exactly, David. For, you know, we 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 did you a disservice by not uh, by not explaining the ascent. The premise of this entire show is that we don't live in darkest timeline America, where like the evilest thing that could happen is the outcome that is most likely. We live in dumbest timeline America, the dumbest possible thing, which is often yeah. an evil thing too. But like, but that's that's the that's the level of expectation that we're setting for ourselves here. Uh, yeah, you're you're entirely right. Like the you know Goodell is not, and the leadership of the NFL are not in any position to deal with. You know, the, with with the coming changes from you know either 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 uh, social changes that are beginning to affect the NFL or uh, CTE, which they have just botched horribly. Uh, but but Goodell was not hired to do that, right? He was he is he was hired specifically because he was raised by the NFL and would not make significant waves. Yeah, uh, and when we've that... seen their willingness to protect him from from uh, from Jerry Jones, and by the you know this is a different subject for a different interview. But but like you, I am a huge fan of weird pissy grudges between extremely dysfunctional. Very very wealthy men, uh, and that was a truly epic one. Yeah, it was, especially because they're both like Goodell is basically like a like a big Teddy Ruxpin that's also a guy. Like he just says like the same five things over and over again, and like blinks periodically. And Jerry Jones is just this bizarre petro creature. He's always like five drinks deep, and like that's a. I mean, it, in some ways, it's you know a Styles make fights kind of thing. It was interesting to watch them have this dispute. <laughs> exactly. Choose but, your fighter. Yeah, you but, have the blandest man on earth. Yep. Or, or you have actual Johnny, Johnny Walker Blue, the person. <laughs> that's exactly right. That's right. Just, Which is really <laughs> sentient broken bottle of wild turkey. Yeah. Oh, Which yeah. is you know it wasn't any smarter than it sounds, but it was the sort of thing where like they weren't going to stop. They weren't going to like sit down and reason together. Like these are two guys that like both very wealthy, both very dumb or at least not dumb exactly, but uh, not, not clever or insightful or uh, introspective in a way that would enable them to solve this or any other dispute. Yes. Yeah. It was like watching a dog fight itself in the mirror. You know, it has to end, but (laughs) no pal. Yeah. Hard to say who the winner is there. <laughs> That's exactly right. Can there ever be a winner? So, and, and and on this point, like out of all of these, you know, and, and we really this this segues very nicely into the broader point, which is, you know, out of out of all of these remarkable humans in their brain trust, yeah. Who I mean, I, I the only exception I would take to your owner is treating their teams and the fan bases in those localities as a slot machine is that I think a lot of people who use slot machines don't hold the machines in abject contempt. Uh, yes. Whereas I, 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 you know, I mean, I think it certainly seemed to view the areas where they, the, the, the locations of their teams certainly in that way uh, has led to this. And you, you characterize this in a piece for Deadspin that I think is really well. Uh, about what has what has become of the NFL, and I just I want to read this because it's a great piece of prose. Under the bleary stewardship of this collection of sunbelt divorce aficionados and chowder-headed fail sons and reptilian plutocrats, the NFL has become something surprisingly surpassingly strange—a towering colossus that could be pushed over with one vigorous shove. It feels, and this is to, to your point about the idea about the sort of the laying bare of the idea that just having a billion dollars doesn't make you a person of much worth. It feels like. There, or of inherent worth at any rate, it feels like there are a lot of these very vulnerable colossuses out there right now. That is the plural of colossus, incidentally. Uh, I had to look yeah. it up. God, I mean, it seems like we're living in one. I mean, it feels like that every day. Every institution, it seems, is now somehow infinitely more vulnerable 
than you might have imagined it to be. And you know, somehow less willing to do anything about it than you would have ever thought possible. Yeah, that is, I think that's the part of it that's, with the NFL, it has a sort of a, a comic effect to it because fundamentally the NFL doesn't really matter. And also it is kind of funny, the fact that they're like, every time they're stumped, they, it's just like, well, what can, are, are there other types of troops that we could use? Like, are we leaving any types of troops out? <laughs> yes. Like that, but it's just keep going back to the, the same thing the over and over. I feel has been far too ignored by the NFL. Yeah, it's embarrassing. And I think that that is one area they want to be leaders in the Coast Guard respecting space. And I think that's good that they're <laughs> that they're targeting that. But I mean, it's just they have no answers. And yet, like, they can only sort of. I mean, they maybe they know that and maybe they don't, but that's not going to stop them from continuing to rely on the old answers. I mean, I was thinking about this right before we got on today. Trump was in New Hampshire talking about how he's going to stop opioids. And his answer was that they were going to make really, really good TV commercials, and then they were going to air them during just the right shows so that people oh would understand. Trump invents marketing. Right. Oh, no. and the idea is that like somehow, you know, the the frying pan and the egg, great idea. It's a little dated. We're going to update it. It's going to be this is going to be so much bigger and we're really going to do it more and more and very strongly. And the idea of like it's one thing to struggle, you know, like people aren't necessarily the best at, at, um, being people, uh, probably the best that we've got, but we make a lot of mistakes. We screw things up. We generally tend to screw them up in the same ways on certain cyclical timetables or just continually for the entire span of human history, depending on the thing. In this case, the idea of like a new challenge demanding a new answer is, I mean, it's a cliche, it's a tautology, whatever you want. It's beyond the capacities of, I think, the NFL, and it certainly seems to be beyond the capacities of of our government at this point. The idea of, I mean, and not even just to blame this on the entire, you know, whatever Republican-occupied national government, although there's certainly plenty to blame them for. It just seems like nobody is quite saying things that address the circumstances that we face because of the fact that they either haven't recognized it or just couldn't be moved to come up with anything new. And so you get great again versus already great and no recognition in between either of those two slogans of any of the actual challenges that uh, people face and have been trying to sort of communicate that they're struggling under, you know, from one, you know, crisis to the sure. next. Right. As, as it presently stands, we are the, the kind of on the state of America discussion, um, that is that you know that uh, that comes up in presidential campaigns. The three messages, two from 2016 and the emerging one for 2020 from the Trump camp, that we will have heard is "Make America Great Again" versus "America is Already Great" and "Keep America Great." Those are those are our like the greatness of America is not in dispute at a time when not necessarily the moral worth of the country. Although I mean I know there are some people who are taking a very hard look at that as well, but. But the sense that that we are in fact not not surrounded by the great and the good at all times, but in fact are living in a set of interlocking institutions, almost all of which appear to be these again towering colossuses that can be pushed over with a vigorous shove, is is sort of overwhelming. Yeah, it's very unsettling, and really, like I would love to say that I've somehow s- sorted out a way to deal with it from one day to the next, and it's just it's strange. I mean, I, I think part of a uh, you know, growing up in this country is like believing not just that you're sort of number one, but that like these things 
the truths that we help we hold to be self-evident are in fact self-evident that people understand mm-hmm. them believe in them that there are some shared values and that there is such a thing as consensus and that uh you know the institutions that we have are designed to sort of build towards progress grounded on those things and at this point it's just there's this sense of a of everything in the culture kind of shrinking to its actual size. And Mm -hmm. some of this was so much smaller than I would have imagined it could be. And so much weaker that it's, it's daunting. I mean, I can definitely see the appeal of, you know, either a revanchist fantasy or a technocratic fantasy because both of those sort of, those are solutions from an era in which we believed that all of these things worked. You know, the idea that we're going to, we're going to take the things that we have and use it to build the future that we want. Uh, whereas I think the things that we have at this point are so much more in doubt and so much more in crisis that it's difficult to, you know, look at those and see that as a logical jumping off point for progress. This is actually, David, that's actually interesting. It's one of the things that I heard this in a podcast or an interview. I don't even, don't even remember at this point uh, a week or two ago that Trump is a symptom. He's not actually the disease. And that sort of terrified me as it set in over the span of like two or three days as it kind of was kind of rattling around in my brain that he's not really the issue. He's just a symptom of it. Yeah. I mean, he's an, he's, he's sure an issue, but yeah, I agree with that. I mean, I think that there's like, he is an expression of, uh, you know, all of these things that are sort of inchoate, but also, you know, increasingly less in Kuwait, increasingly, uh, I guess you'd have to say Kuwait. <laughs> Surprisingly <laughs> Kuwait. Right. Troublingly Kuwait, one right. might say. But the, there is that, that idea of uh, that choice to just kind of, like, live in a, in a fantasy that's more, confi- you know, whatever, uh, comforting than uh, the reality. That that's like, I mean, for sure that's how he does it. I mean, this is a guy that's just basically been hooked up to a television nonstop for 30 years and hasn't learned a single new thing during that period of time. But yeah, I mean like consider the alternative. Like if you think that sounds depressing, like try the subway. <laughs> no, and the, the, yeah, Sean, Sean Connery and Wesley Snipes can save the subway too. No. Yeah. It was a, <laughs> That the that was one of my favorite dumb uh, just the idea when Trump was talking about the bowling ball test of Japanese cars like I know that he's seen Rising Sun I don't know that he's watched all of it but the idea of like Trump somehow uh, leading into a conversation about like you know at the beginning the woman very beautiful and you do see her bosoms is choked to death who committed the crime I don't remember like just going on and he's like talking to whatever the National Association of Manufacturers at that point. If we haven't had that moment yet, I think it, it could very well be happening right now. Almost certainly. I mean, has he stopped talking in New Hampshire? Because if not, we should, we should tune <laughs> yeah. back in and see. If he's, he's got another 40 you know. minutes. He's, he gets really sleepy around 5.15 and needs oh, to be taken away from my – Yeah, exactly. That's when things get really dicey. It's just – oh, my God. It's just a matter of the next NFL season he's going to bring up Last Boy Scout. I just know it. He may have only seen <laughs> one – oh, God. He's only seen one scene. Like they're bringing guns onto the – these thugs are bringing guns onto the field. That's why we need to arm all the players – and the coaches, yeah, it just turns into the OK Corral. No, but yeah. that, that oh, actually gosh. works perfectly because that's how the NFL will deal with CTE. Yeah, <laughs> that's, 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 
That's that's grim, but it is a solution. That's the thing. We've been talking about people not willing to look to hard solutions in the eye, and by God, we've yeah. got one now. This is the no. thing. When you when you get a new answer, when you see an authentically new answer, do you have the courage to, to face it down? <laughs> to admit what it is. Yeah. So we, we owe you on this podcast a, a debt of thanks because uh, one of our the sort of themes of this of this enterprise and uh, and and of our of our professional lives is asserting a large is asserting uh, to uh, extremely well meaning and and understandably very upset progressives that what they are seeing from Donald Trump is not some kind of three dimensional chess not some kind of brilliant strategy of distraction uh, but but isn't he's not there isn't a plan he's not trying to distract that it is just like this is just what you are seeing is exactly what you're getting don't overthink it in fact don't think it at all. Uh, it's it is he is he is exactly as reactionary and narcissistic and monomaniacal as he seems, and and also as lazy and uh, and uninterested in learning and just and and in, in impaired. Right? Yeah, I, th- I think uh, it's that last bit that's so hard for people to take. It's like you can accept that he's he's you know, wicked, but like accepting that he's also like an insane dumbass who doesn't pay attention to anything. <laughs> that's like a bridge too far somehow. I think. Yeah, it's it's a hard it's a hard thing to admit because what we want when we have been when we have been beaten and 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 you know I mean that it wasn't the popular vote but it did happen you know the largest electoral college victory in uh, in in history some people are saying uh, at least at least one person is saying that uh, you know when you've been beaten uh, it's you want to believe that you were beaten by the by the best by by someone else's cunning by someone else's superior strategy or reason or whatever uh, and in point of fact and so the idea of being beaten by this you know by this sort of you know, Commedia dell'arte figure is just is just more than I think a lot of people can stand, and and I'm I'm sympathetic to that. I really am, uh, but this is just another way. Of, this is another way of, of just uh, pushing a, a recommendation of a piece of yours to our listeners, which is uh, you should read David's piece uh, from uh, from Baffler again in 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 August, uh, which I believe uh, was yes, it was essentially on Trump and uh, and and. Why not? Why not to expect too much from this guy? Yeah, which uh, is, not, it was right after Charlottesville too, so that wasn't yes. a problem at the time. It wasn't like people were like, "Wow, I'm really disappointed." This seems way out of character for him. I think it was yeah. it's the first sense of how low uh, it could actually get. Yeah, how inexplicably ridiculously dumb it could get. Um, so I, we we could continue with this uh, interview for for considerably longer. Uh, this, uh, but we've uh, we appreciate your being able to join us this afternoon. Uh, we have we'd like to finish off with our uh, with our lightning round, if we may. Yeah. Uh, so we're going to go through uh, four questions real fast. Uh, what is a, a book, a piece of music, film, television program, essentially any piece of culture that you would like to recommend to our listeners? Uh, I mean, it's the last book I read. Um, and it's depressing, but uh, it's Evicted by Matthew Desmond, um, which is not about really any of the things that we talked about here, except for uh, hopelessness. <laughs> I mean, just in the sense of <laughs> it is about— You're really selling this thing, Roth. I, I know, right. <laughs> also, it's uh, very uh, amply footnoted, and that's all I have to say. No, it's it's very good, but it is about uh, people getting evicted and, and just sort of like marginal life in Milwaukee told from the perspective of landlords and uh, renters. But what is interesting about it, I mean, it ends with a policy prescription. Like Desmond is a sociologist, not a, a politician or, you know, or even I think an aspiring policymaker. But it, I think, is useful in the sense sort of connected to what we were talking about that like it 
is a problem that everybody sort of knows exists. exists. Nobody really quite understands just how bad it is, which it turns out is quite bad. But it is also the sort of thing that is easily brushed aside one way or another in terms of, you know, don't get more house than you can afford bootstrap yourself. We're going to your universal basic income or whatever. There's all these like easy answers that avoid actually kind of wrestling with how challenging this stuff is, uh, at a human level. And then also, you know, at every other sort of practical level. And I think doing that work, uh, just in the sense of trying to engage and understand this stuff first, like that's where this has to sort of begin the process of, uh, eventually figuring this problem or any other problem out. Like it can't just be, uh, saying don't do it that way, which seems to be more or less where we're stuck at. Yes. And, and indeed we can't even necessarily land there because even though housing blew up and almost killed us all 10 years ago, uh, we are now, if we are now even no longer able to agree on don't do it that way. Yeah, uh, as, I mean, as we've, as we've like, seen recently, so we God, sure. and the idea now is that, like, you know, it's like, don't do it that way. Like, we know that won't work. So, they, you know, because it, like, destroyed the economy nine years ago. So, like, they won't do it again, right? Like, they're not stupid. Look, they have a billion dollars. Like, yeah. human history, the, the, the nice thing about human history is that we never repeat our mistakes. Yes, that's what I love about it. This original new creation. The writing is always so fresh. <laughs> That's precisely it. Uh, so what is a, uh, a, another lightning round, a food or a drink that you've had recently that you would recommend? Something that uh, may bring a little bit of pleasure into the lives of our listeners. Oh, man. Um, well, it's it's a New York City-centric thing, but I will, uh, again, recommend it because it's so meaningful to me. Um, you can get this type of food anywhere, but uh, Gion Famous Foods is a type of uh, sort of a mini chain in New York City now started in the Golden Mall in Flushing, Queens, uh, which is a super skanky place to eat amazingly good food. Uh, it's just, um, the particular dish that I'm thinking of is hand pulled noodles with, a like a braised lamb with a lot of cumin and, and pepper over it. Uh, it's, there's a couple of different foods that I think about all the time. This is the one that I happen to be thinking about right now. Uh, but there's, it's a, it's a fairly uh, short list the idea of like sandwiches that just kind of occupy my consciousness mm -hmm. when I should otherwise be thinking about other things. And these are the noodles I think about. Those are the, yeah, these, these are the noodles that, that's, that you've been incepted with and, and you'll yeah. never be able to get out of you. No, I totally, I, I totally get you. Uh, that's a, a, a strong recommendation and one of the better that we've had. Thank you. In in the so in in this in the Trump era this this cultural moment the hellscape whatever it is we want to call it uh, lots of people are interested in doing something some good somewhere uh, is there an organization that you rent that you recommend supporting and why I mean I can tell you that like I'm a member of the Writers Guild of America I'm a member of the Democratic Socialists I mean like I these things have been useful to me and I would say that in my life nothing has had more uh, professional and psychological benefits simultaneously than uh, working to organize my former workplace and then being a member of the union and going to a number of boring meetings and, and doing all that stuff. It's not, I know, a thing that everybody can do, but I do think that it's, it's really the only answer that I've found uh, work-wise for the sort of challenge of agency in having to try to function as an, like an autonomous professional being in this climate. Uh, it's, a, it seems like a silly thing to say, like organize your workplace. Cause I, I know that's not an option for everybody. There's a lot of people that are freelance. There are a lot of people that are on edge, but it, it's, I think it's the, the single best thing that you could do for your 
your work life and in, in a lot of other ways for yourself, because there's just some of these problems of just in general, like a parlousness of day-to-day life. Like you can't solve that through positive thinking or like mindset or whatever. I mean, it, there has to be solidarity and there has to be some sort of action on that. Indeed, no. No matter how serious a mindset expert you may be, uh, to to uh, you know, we, we can all aspire to be certain of it. Even if you get your brain totally smooth, <laughs> that's precise. <laughs> if you take, if you just take this series of vitamins and maybe some other, like maybe some other metals, we're not quite sure what's in this stuff. But if you take it, you're going to be like, you'll get your, as you say, you'll get your brain smooth, you'll get your mindset right, and then, then and only then will you become a conqueror of the world. Yeah, that's the no. other thing. If you can't organize your workplace, uh, definitely order Chalk X from Alex Jones. That's a liquid chalk drink, and. You can uh, just do that, and it will make your consciousness much more powerful than you ever imagined. We are reasonably confident it will not kill you. Yeah. Reasonably confident. That's the FDA's actual report. If it uh, does, it's probably like a Soros thing designed to discredit Chalk X. That's exactly. Well, you know, sometimes we sometimes we have to, to call a little bit from time to time. <laughs> on the on the su- on the subject of your uh, on the subject of the of, of the Writers Guild, you, you made the point that yes, there it is it is it is the case that not everyone is in a position to organize their workplace. Even for freelancers, however, I just wanted to bring this up for our listeners. There is the freelancers union. Uh, it is the ultimate cat herding project in some respects. Uh, it is. It, I mean, I, I am not going to mince words. They have a very steep hill, but they, I think, in many respects, do a very good job. Uh, they were collectively bargaining health care uh, for freelancers uh, before the ACA. There, there's 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 value in them as well. So I think you know. For I the, had no I actually was nice. down with them. I had hip through them back in the uh, middle of the last decade. Yeah. So and, and, and yeah. And and you have a sense of the, I mean the difficulty of organizing across every field. Uh, oh my God! You know, yeah, I mean it's 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 nightmarish, but but they're they continue to do God's work. So listeners, if you're if you're out there and you're you know and you are a freelancer, and a number of our, our listeners are, and you are looking for a way to to be part of something greater that may at least be able to look after some of your interest, uh, consider them. And yeah, take Roth's take Roth's advice. If you can organize your workplace, do it. Do it before you have to, because when you have because if you have to organize and haven't organized, it's too late. Yeah. Yeah. So, David, where can people uh, find you if they want to follow follow your work and your thoughts? Oh boy, uh, most of it's a dead spin now, uh, which is where I work during the day, uh, and then you know I I tweet, which you know if that's something that interests you, you should definitely follow me on Twitter if you would like to maintain a moderately high opinion of me. You should just don't do that. Uh, you can just read the stories and the dumb blogs that I do. But I'm, you know, there's other stuff at other places. Uh, I don't have anything new coming for the Baffler, but I'd love to write for them again. I'm doing a sort of occasional series of stuff for Medium about how the internet makes us crazy, and I've been working on a couple of things from that very, very slowly. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I'm uh, just trying to find some sort of way to um, feel like I'm not writing the same column about the NFL five times in a row. So sure. there'll be there'll be some non-sports stuff mixed in there too, just for my own sake. Sure. Well, that's that is that's excellent, and I'm looking forward to reading that. Uh, I do on the on the sports question. I do want to ask you one last one. Uh, is it possible that uh, Ben McAdoo and and Bob Huggins get their clothing from the same place? Actually, no. <laughs> let me ask you: this. Is it possible that they don't? Is there any possibility that they that there are two people who would sell a garment like that? I now I would love to say that it you know in an, it, this is a large universe, right? This is there's many many billions of people on earth. And we have to assume that some percentage of them are in the business of selling, uh, extremely girthy windbreakers. But I know for a fact, because I watched Huggy last night, um, 
it's the same make. It's the same model of windbreaker that Nike makes that McAdoo wears. Uh, only McAdoo's had the New York Giants logo on it, and uh, Huggins's has the West Virginia logo on it. I know this because when I was reporting a blog, which is not uh, really quite the right word for it, on Ben McAdoo's hideous clothing during his time with the Giants, I looked on the NFL team store to try to find the actual items that he was wearing and how much they cost. And then those items in the way that the internet's out, uh, advertising algorithms work, I was followed across the entire internet. <laughs> oh, no. That double XL Giants windbreaker for like a month. And everywhere <laughs> that I went, that was the ad that popped up. It's like, we saw that you were looking at this. Have you reconsidered your decision to buy the <laughs> short sleeve quarter zip 2XL Giants windbreaker? It's the quarters of, and the sh- and the short sleeve. It's the sleeves. Why I can't get my head around it, Roth. Why would There's anyone so have practical. a garment with sleeves that just go to the elbows? It's insane. They're extremely loose too. So it's the sort of thing where, like, not only do they go to the elbows, like, there's a good chance, like, a pigeon could fly up there comfortably in the space between the bottom of the sleeve and your arm. It almost certainly has. Like, I do it's keep waiting for something to escape out from under Bob Huggins. They're all they're cut in such a great, I mean, like Huggins himself is a, is a girthy fellow. Like he's mm-hmm. a, his body shape is kind of like grimacy. Uh, if you're familiar with McDonald's land, it's like that kind of, a, oh, yes. a, a like a heirloom eggplant sort of physique. And so this is like maybe not the worst sort of garment for him, but somehow this on him is huge. McAdoo had been heavier earlier. He'd lost a bunch of weight when he became the Giants head coach. And it was like, he just kept, I don't even know if they make these windbreakers in a size that's a little more fitted. Like they are just sort of designed to, I don't know, fill with wind and carry you short distances. I don't, they're bizarre. They're really remarkable. I've got another 20 or 30 minutes on this. If you want to keep talking about windbreakers, by the way, I'm, I'm, I'm looking, we've got, we've got to have you back to pick that one up because that this, this is the, this is the important content that this country craves at this difficult time. <laughs> yeah. And, and I can take it a step a little bit further. My wife who happens to be in fashion, when she had to design a vest, she called it the thong of outerwear. <laughs> it is. Oh my God. That is also uh, not the worst band name that I've ever heard. If I'm being honest. Yeah. yeah, it's yeah. not bad. It it's a be, strong entry. It's like a Hawkwind cover band, though. It's like really unbearable, <laughs> long, ponderous. Yeah, yeah. Oh man, I get what are those I famous Hawkwind cover bands you see playing everywhere these days? Oh yeah, yeah. They're yeah. You, I mean, you can't swing a cat with that in one of them. David, <laughs> thank you, thank you so much for joining us this afternoon. This has been great. Thanks for having me, man. I appreciate it. All right, thank you, David. Just want to quick, quickly remind everybody to please subscribe and rate us on iTunes. Those subscriptions and ratings are really important, so please do so. And please get a couple of your friends or relatives to do the same. It would be greatly appreciated. And follow us on Twitter at TakingShip, and that's ship with a P as in Panchax. Also, uh, Frank is at Frank Spring, and I am at Ellie Jacobs, so uh, please check us out as well. Uh, with that, Frank, where are we headed this week? We take ship this week for the Aral Sea, which is on the border of Kazakhstan and Uzbekistan. It used to be one of the larger bodies of inland water in the world. It was effectively drained by the Soviets during their occupation of Kazakhstan and Uzbekistan. They were using the water to, uh, for agricultural products, mainly to grow cotton. And uh, what, was, what, is, what was left after this, the sea was effectively drained uh, was a fine layer of sediment of the, the pesticides that had drained back out of the fields and, and dried 
dried up uh, and was left in the bottom of the lake. So they took a they took a perfectly good inland body of water and left it a dried up poison pit uh, at the center of which was an island where they had been testing biological weapons. So it really felt like they could have gotten better and more respectful use out of that particular body of water. Uh, but never mind that now. Uh, after Over the course of uh, several decades, there's been a real push, uh, particularly over the last uh, 15 to 20 years, to resuscitate the RLC. Uh, there are all manner of, uh, of, of uh, health hazards that it poses to nearby communities with this this you know, this uh, bowl of, of poison dust. Uh, to, and, and those efforts have been working. The RLC uh, has been gaining water. Uh, it is now uh, much more, uh, it, is, it is still not back up or anything anywhere close to uh, its former majesty as an inland body of water, uh, but it is becoming a, a, a more habitable uh, a marine ecosystem now. Uh, and and there's, there's hope that it may be someday be completely restored. Now, I know what you're thinking. You may be thinking uh, that uh, as a, that because the crew of taking ships stands on the front lines of the war on the sea, uh, that we would naturally be against this proposal. Uh, that we would, and and I want to assure you that we are not wavering one moment. We are not wavering one inch uh, from our commitment to the defeat of our perfidious aquatic foes. However, this gives us an opportunity to make an important policy clarification and uh, also to do some good in this world. So I would like to say definitively that the. RLC is not actually a sea. It is inland. It is therefore a lake. I would uh, respectfully submit they think about changing their name from the RLC to the RL Very Big Lake, uh, and it is therefore exempt from our war on the ocean itself and the ocean's war on us, provided it keeps its nose clean. So, friends, we go there not to oppose this plan, uh, but rather with hope in our hearts and buckets in our hands to help them uh, to help uh, fill the RLC back in with water uh, and perhaps change, persuade the uh, the good people of the area to change the name to the R. Uh, are all very big lake. I'm sure they will listen to our suggestions respectfully and take them on board directly. Uh, this can only end well. Friends, we take ship now for the border of Kazakhstan and Uzbekistan. Take care, everybody. <laughs>